This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club. The Charcoal Book Club is a monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, a member receives a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Join the club by visiting charcoalbookclub.com and use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. We also have the support of LensRentals.com, the largest online camera rental house in the U.S. They carry the most popular brands and models of cameras, lenses, and anything you need for video, lighting, post-processing, and more. Whether you need something for a one-time assignment or want to test it out before you buy, LensRentals.com is there to help. Explore their extensive inventory and save 10% on your first order when you sign up for their newsletter at LensRentals.com forward slash newsletter. We who live in the Western world often think of land and property in terms of capitalism and wealth, or, or the lack of it. But land can and is also about heritage, legacy, family, and spirituality. In spite of the many atrocities that Native Americans have suffered from, they continue to recognize and honor such spaces even when it's surrounded by modernity and the very culture that sought to erase them. Michael Sherwin has used his camera to photograph indigenous sacred landforms, archaeological sites, and disputed battlegrounds. What began as a personal curiosity turned into a long-term personal project that is as much about an exploration of his own personal place in history as it is about his creativity. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. If you love photojournalism and documentary photography, do yourself a favor, check out The Curious Society. They are a member-supported nonprofit that is building an amazing photo community that supports exceptional work and the people who create it. They offer two grants to college students to support their work and produce a quarterly oversized magazine, which is just amazing, if not better than some of the books that I've seen this past year. Find out more by visiting their website at CuriousSociety.org. Well, I've enjoyed the book. It's been really interesting. Mm -hmm. I had just been reading and, and watching a documentary about issue of of the change, how the, the face of the country or the, the land, which became the country, sort of changed and how it, how the story of the discovery of the Americas and, you know, the slave trade and how that sort of reshaped the entire, not just the United States, but the entire Western hemisphere. And uh, so your, your book was sort of, sort of timely in that it sort of fit into a lot of the things that I've been exploring personally as of late. So I really appreciated the book, not just for the beauty of the imagery is but some of the things that you were touching on. Um, so I appreciate that. So thank you for, for sharing that with me. Yeah. I'd like to start though with your, your upbringing. You grew up in Ohio. Your, your backyard were like the, the wilds of that, that, that community that you lived in and that, that really sort of shaped your relationship with the land. So talk to me about that and, and how you think that shaped you as a person, but also eventually the way you see as a photographer. Yeah, well, well, thank you for having me. Really, it's it's a it's a great honor, and thank you for the compliments on the book. Yeah, I grew up in in southwestern Ohio, um, in the suburb of Cincinnati. Our house backed up to a creek and a and a decent patch of woods. And uh, you know, growing up in the eighties, I was born in nineteen seventy four. So growing up in the eighties. In that area there, you know, of course there were, there were no phones. We had no cable TV. I could not wait to get outside. That's that, that, that was where I wanted to be all the time. Um, so I spent a lot of time, uh, just in my, in my yard, in my backyard and in those woods and, um, running around, following the Creek, collecting whatever kind of animals I could find, um, following the Creek as far as I could go. My father uh, also was um, influential um, on, on my experience as a child. 
we spent a lot of time uh, in the woods and uh, walking off trail and uh, just kind of exploring. And, you know, he, he has a similar personality traits that I have in that, you know, the outdoors and adventures in the outdoors and, and nature were, were really important to him as well. And that's where I think he kind of detached from the rest of the world uh, and got in touch with something that, that, you know, made him feel at peace. And uh, that, that was kind of handed down to me. And, you know, so on Sunday mornings, uh, pretty regularly, uh, we would go on these long hikes, um, usually with my brother, my younger brother and I, sometimes my sisters as well. And we would just kind of wander around the woods. <laughs> I clearly remember just uh, at one point in the fall collecting buckeyes and we would fill our shirt tails full of buckeyes and it was just, you know, these are these sort of like really profound experiences I had as a kid uh, with my father that have led to a, a sort of lifetime of exploring that connection with, with nature and, and the outdoor world. What are buckeyes? <laughs> uh, buckeyes are, uh, they're a nut that's dropped from a buckeye tree and, and they are, um, yeah, I guess this is, this, maybe this is an Eastern woodland thing. It's a hardwood tree. Uh, they're, they're these, uh, circular little nuts that are uh, dark brown mostly. And then they have a small sort of eye on them. That's light brown and they're kind of hard to find. And they're only in, you know, specific parts of the woods at a specific time of year. Um, and as a kid, you know, you find one and then you find another and another, and it becomes this kind of like treasure hunt. And I just remember that really fondly. And so we would bring them home and I don't know, we made necklaces out of them and we collected them and. And they're just kind of cool, cool little things you find in the, in, you know, that drop from a tree. As a kid, you was fascinated with. Yeah, my relationship to, to the wilds were, were pretty rare and far between. We would go to summer camp, but it, and we would make, probably make some observations of, of, of nature, but there really wasn't that sort of connection that you, you experienced there. We were much more involved in being away from home and, and being invested in all the activities that they had for us. And, and so the, the, the visiting out into the woods is more, uh, sort of an exotic experience. But I, I think it's kind of interesting that it was sort of an everyday one for you, but that you gained a real sensitivity to it. One of the things I, I think was probably interesting in terms of observing is, is how the immediacy of it probably uh, tuned you in to how it changes. Uh, you know, especially from season to season and over a long period of time. Tell me how, how that experience, how do you think that experience may have refined your eye to how you observe it and how you experience it? Mm, interesting question. Yeah, it, it may have, um, I thought, sort of subconsciously infiltrated, you know, how I was uh, sort of seeing things at, at different times of year, you know, thinking of what kind of what kind of animals were around, you know, for example, fireflies. I don't, I don't know if you have fireflies or lightning bugs on the West coast. I used to live on the West coast and I don't remember ever seeing them, but you know, for a few weeks out of the summer, maybe a month, these bugs come out at night and they light up their tail end. And uh, it's a phenomenal experience. You know, that's like the peak of summer. And uh, I remember as a kid, just like, could not wait for it to get dark for these lightning bugs to come out. And we would, we would collect as many as we could and put them in a jar, which probably wasn't the greatest idea for the lightning bugs. Uh, but the whole jar, you know, you put enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. So none of this collecting was actually good for the animals, but it, you know, I revered these creatures and I couldn't get enough of them. I'm talking about turtles and frogs and crawl daddies and crayfish and snakes and, but lightning bugs, yeah, they, they would, they would, we'd fill up a whole jar, a glass jar with them and put the lid on it. And it was like this lantern that would kind of pulsate. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I certainly was, at that age, I wasn't aware really of light. Of course, I wasn't thinking about that, but I think it was the experience of just being outside so much that just kept me alive. Uh, and it was different every time. And I just wanted to keep recreating those experiences and I have kind of th throughout my life. When you started studying photography and became and, and realized that this was something you wanted to do with your, with, with your life, 
did you already know what you wanted the focus of your work to be, or did you have to sort of come around to it? Oh, yeah. So I started actually, um, my first love was architecture. Um, this is something I fell in love with uh, as a young boy. My dad bought a, you know, a drafting table and brought it home. And I would spend hours in our basement with a T-square and a triangle and a big eraser designing my dream houses. And I loved um, engineering drawing, architectural drawing. Uh, I think this has actually come into how I do installations of my own photographic work these days. Uh, but so I started with architecture and then um, one thing led to another and I, and I, and I took, my, took my first photography class. And at a, a, I think about a year before that, I actually went on a cross country road trip with my best friend and we drove from New Jersey to San Francisco. And uh, I took like 10 disposable cameras. You remember those disposable film cameras? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I was just constantly taking pictures the whole time. And I don't think they were anything great, uh, but I was enamored with the idea of sort of recording this experience to share with others and recording this experience of this land that was so inspirational for me. Um, and so when I came back, I was at, at Ohio State University at that time. I came back and I was like, hmm, architecture wasn't really working out. Maybe I should take a photography class. And actually, I took an industrial design for a while. And eventually, I took a photography class. I think it was a requirement for this other major. And I mean, I was hooked right off the bat. Um, just loved working in the darkroom. Uh, it's been hours and hours working in the dark room. It was like therapy for me. I remember uh, my photo one instructor, you know how influential your professors, your mentors are at that age. I think about that a lot as a professor myself, but my professor at the end of the semester, he kind of pulled me aside and he said, you know, you, you've got something here. You should think about taking another class. And that was it. That's all I needed. You know, I was kind of lost, wasn't sure what I was going to do. But just him saying that, I decided to take another class, and it just kind of rolled from there. The subject of this, of this book is an exploration of, of sites that are of significance to Native Americans. You have especially those very, several conical mountains that are also sometimes um, burial, burial sites. But there are other uh, sites of spiritual significance. Um, tell us about how this became a point of interest for you. Yeah, that's and that's a that's a really good question. I have uh, kind of a long answer. I'll try to keep it as short as possible, but I think it really goes back to where our conversation started, and that I I grew up without any real spiritual direction. My my parents and in particular my father were were very anti-religion. So when a lot of my friends and you know. Cincinnati were going to church on Sundays. As I mentioned earlier, I was taking on these long wandering walks uh, through the southwestern woods and creeks. And so um, I formed a bond with the um, natural world, the phenomenon of the physical world at a very early age. And that led to a lifetime of, of exploring that connection and wilderness. And so I think that that was sort of always with me. Uh, and I had in college, I had researched um, Eastern religions and Native American spirituality, and I found that I had a, um, very similar kinds of beliefs and, and interests. So then what happened was my family and I moved to West Virginia in 2007. Um, and shortly after moving here, um, well, there were these protests happening on this very busy street intersection. And uh, we came to find out years later that these protesters were objecting to the development of the Suncrest Town Center, uh, which was a sort of anywhere America shopping mall and development. Um, and it turns out that the, the story here, and I don't know all the specifics of the story, are still kind of unfolding for me many, many years later. But what I know of it is that uh, Walmart originally owned a a lease for this land. Uh, and this was less than a mile from where we were living. They had a sort of bad reputation of desecrating sacred sites. So 
uh, in the process of um, excavating the land, they had exhumed all of these uh, skeletal remains. Um, so they backed out, a local developer stepped in, and the excavation continued. Um, those remains were sent to the Seneca tribe in upstate New York. You know, the, the, the development continued. So it turns out that this site, uh, as far as what I know about it, it was a Monongahalan culture site. It could have been one of the largest, most important archaeological sites um, east of the Mississippi. And it was a large village site, a burial site. And here it was less than a mile from my house. Um, so all these things kind of came to bear. I felt compelled to photograph the site, to learn more about the site. And then the project, project uh, Vanishing Points, just kind of unfolded from there. It was really interesting reading that the, the remains were sent to the Seneca tribe, who were rivals of the, of the, of the tribes whose, who actual ancestors' remains, which I just thought was very poignant and, and sort of a, a, a sort of reinforcement of the indifference that people have to, to these communities. There's been more of a development to that story. Like I said, this this is still unfolding. But initially, I thought, yes, this is what adding insult to injury, um, sending these skeletal remains to the Seneca tribe. But it turns out that there there are so many um, sort of overlapping uh, histories on this land. It could have been that actually the Seneca tribe. Um, and culture did have some developments in the area. And that the other thing is that these skeletal remains um, had to go somewhere to be protected. And so I've been told by a, a local historian and director of the Native American Studies Program that this could have been not such a bad thing, actually, that these skeletal remains sent to this other tribe could have been a way to protect them, to house them temporarily. Uh, and it could have actually been their ancestors. So things are still kind of unfolding. There's so many layers to this story and to this land that we live that are, are constantly unfolding that I found myself kind of stepping in the wrong direction, you know, or moving too quickly with assumptions. And that's one where I feel like there, the research keeps coming out. And so it's a, it's, this project is this evolving learning experience for me as a white male trying to step into some of this history. I'm, I'm stepping delicately um, and sometimes I'm stumbling and I'm tripping over things and um, people are recorrecting me. And uh, it's been a phenomenal learning experience. And you touch on that in the, in the essay with which you opened the book about concerns about being a non-Native American photographing these sites, exploring these sites and sharing the stories of these sites. How is that... How has that sort of perspective evolved and changed during the time that you've been working on the project? Yeah, great question. It's been a, a perennial concern of mine, um, and it's only grown. I think when I first started the project, I was, this was, you know, we're talking about 10 or 11 years ago. And um, I went into it with a lot of energy and uh, a lot of research and didn't think didn't reflect as much initially about why am I doing this? Is it okay to do this? You know, so the first couple of years went by, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm traveling a lot. I'm making photographs. I feel like I'm on to something. And then as the project kind of, uh, I sort of came to not a closing point, but it sort of came to a point uh, where it was growing into this much larger thing, I started to really stop and question, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? And I think the project at the same time was getting a lot more attention, it was getting publicity and articles. And, and I was also getting asked these questions and I was preparing for these interviews. And I'm thinking, asking myself all these questions, like what, why am I doing this? Why am I interested in this? Why do I feel so compelled to do this? And is it okay to do this? Um, and I, you know, I think those are really important questions to ask yourself. I don't know that I have the answers for those. I'm still asking myself those. Um, but some of the things we've already talked about, I think, support 
my reason for exploring um, the land and considering the land as a space uh, of a sort of sacred experience. And then ultimately, though, I was thinking that I needed to know more about why I'm here and what happened, what has happened before I came here. I've called this place home, but is it really home? Do I really understand what has happened? And the more this project unfolded, the more I read, I've done a lot of reading and research, the more I learned and the more I wanted to learn about my presence here, not just in West Virginia, not just in Ohio where I grew up, but in this country, the United States, and the real history of this country, which was never really taught to us. You know, we're talking, they taught maybe the 200 years of history, but even that was a sort of curated vision of, of history. For me, I wanted to know the real story. And the more you learn about the real story of the creation of the United States, the more kind of, um, the more, the more jaded I got, the more frustrated I got, the more I wanted to kind of tell a different story about the history of this country. I think the question that you're asking yourself about why you're doing it and should I be doing it? I think that just asking yourself the questions, I think is, is as good a place to be, even if you don't have a clear and definitive answer for it. Because I think that that really speaks to a sense of, of looking at the photographs, looking at what you're creating beyond the surface beyond just making uh, a pleasing looking photograph, because I think it opens the door to a dialogue, a dialogue uh, between you and yourself and all any other, any other person who's sort of involved or has any interest in, in the subject matter. Um, I think that we're so used to um, hard, clean definitions of what it means to be an artist or need or to be part of a community or to be part of a history that things are far more nebulous than, than most of us would kid or admit. So I think that especially for artists being able to admit that they know they don't have all the answers and that that's okay too, but that you're open to exploring and to be, and to be challenged. Cause I, I I'm, I'm sort of, I'm always wary of people who want to give me definitive answers about anything, especially when it comes to art. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I do really appreciate that insight in the work. That's something we talk about a lot in my classes as well. I think the fact that I think students sometimes will get really caught up in, in concept and sometimes their work grinds to a halt. And I tell them the, the fact that you are just simply interested in this thing is enough, you know, like uh, that in itself is content. Try not to get too much, you know, too wrapped up into um, why you're doing this and how you're going to do it. Just try to follow that intuition. And, and that's what I'm trying to do with this work. I'm also trying to step very carefully. You know, none of the sites that I'm visiting are, um, all the sites that I'm visiting are public, publicly accessible. So um, I'm very careful about, you know, not, not stepping where I'm not supposed to be. Um, but yeah, I, I really appreciate um, what you have to say there about, you know, just, just, just kind of always asking, your, always asking yourself those questions. And that's, that's kind of become a way for me to continue learning more and more and more about my presence here and about the history of, of this country. I really like the essay that you wrote uh, at the beginning. Sometimes I have mixed feelings about the essays that begin a, a photo book, but I really liked yours. Um, I, lo I love the writing and the storytelling, and but there were several different moments that I really appreciated. One was when you got to the site where the circle is, and you can explain to to our listeners what that what that place was, mm -hmm. but that you took the time to just be present and not immediately dive into making photographs, which I, I loved hearing that because I think it's, um, it's something that's lost on us as photographers who are always, you know, so, so focused on creating the image, especially when light is changing. But the other thing was 
you chose to photograph not the, the circle, not in its entirety, but rather a singular element of an eagle feather that was mounted on a post. And, and the reason I appreciated that was just the, the choice to do that as opposed to doing this all-encompassing photograph, but also just the fact that you had a bit of knowledge in terms of the importance of that eagle feather, and that helped to inform the result of making that photograph. So talk to us about that, that particular experience and the choices you made that led to you sort of just taking it in and also making that, that solitary, solitary photograph on your medium format film camera. Yeah, thank you. It's actually shot on a large format um, field camera. Um, but uh, yeah, I appreciate your thoughts about the, the essay. Um, that's really nice to hear. Uh, I did not want to write a sort of academic artist statement. And um, I figured this is um, the experience of photographing uh, the, the medicine wheel. You're talking about the Bighorn Medicine Wheel site in uh, northeastern Wyoming. That was one of those singular experiences uh, over the course of working on this project for 10 years that I think by describing the experience of visiting and then making that photograph, it kind of sets the tone for my approach to each one of these photographs. I think it kind of emphasizes the fact that I'm slowing down quite a bit. I'm reconsidering and reconsidering again about how to represent these places and why I'm representing these places and uh, what is the best what is the best subject matter or photograph uh, to convey that. So um, yeah, that that is an incredible site. It's ten thousand feet high in the Bighorn Mountains. I write about it um, in the book. Um, but the experience of of just of getting to that site, this was a place that I had wanted to visit from the very beginning of this project. And I didn't know if I would be able to make it there. It's a very remote site. And I didn't even know if I'd be able to find it. But I was so excited to visit that, um, that I barely slept the night before I was up at three or four in the morning driving in the dark for two hours. You know, I described this whole experience in the book, but it was like being the only person alive in the world that morning, which I kind of cherish that as well. Um, and so I arrived at the site, nobody there, had to hike two miles. I'm, I'm shooting large format uh, with a large format camera. And so I'm carrying a really heavy backpack and a 10 to 15 pound tripod. And I finally get to the site and the, the light is absolutely beautiful. It's what photographers live for. But I knew that I would be rushing to make a picture of the site and I wouldn't actually be able to feel uh, the sort of uh, incredible wonderment and reverence of this site if I was uh, distracted by setting up my camera and trying to get the best composition and figuring out all the technical details. So I literally just set everything down and I walked the full circle of um, the medicine wheel. I had the entire site to myself. Uh, it was a really, really incredible experience. This is, this is, you know, these are the kind of things that I live for. Uh, I have lived for my whole life. And here I am setting up another circumstance where I can have an experience that to me puts me in touch with, you know, um, for lack of a better word, it, it, it puts me in touch with my God. It puts me in touch with the spiritual center of my universe. Um, just being outdoors in nature, in this place, in this land that has been, sacred for tens of thousands of years. I literally, I think it's over 11,000 years old. They don't even know how old this site is and it's been protected that long. It's really incredible. Uh, finally, I make a full, the full circle of the site and, um, and I come back to my camera and I realize on this post close by is this eagle feather uh, sticking in the top of the post. And it was very reminiscent uh, of a photograph I had seen of the, the great um, Lakota chief leader, uh, Red Cloud. And uh, so anyways, I described that kind of experience uh, of relating this post of feather to this photograph I had seen in the book. Um, but I figured this was it. This is what I was going to make a picture of. So I go through the whole process of setting up a picture, which, you know, when you're shooting large format, it's a, it's a long process of um, setting up 
for a single shot. Um, and that turns out that was the only photograph I made that morning. And I think, you know, I could have made other photographs. I could have tried to capture the entire circle, which most photographers do when they visit that site. But uh, none of those would have resonated to me in the way in which this, this uh, single feather on the top of a post did. And, you know, I think that's, that's the real difference here in this work is I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a documentary photographer. I'm not a photojournalist. I'm not trying to tell the, a literal story here. I'm just, it's really just kind of a personal and physical experience that I'm trying to tap into and, and trying to explore some, some experience and share some experience of this place. Though it's hard to believe or want to admit the holidays are coming, soon enough it will be time for family gatherings, celebrations, and gift giving. And while most of us are often thinking about what we're going to get for somebody else, why not gift yourself a membership to the Charcoal Book Club? Think about the many gifts that you've received during your lifetime and what little is left of most of it. Why not celebrate another successful rotation around the sun and surviving the holidays with a gift that you'll enjoy for years to come. With your membership, you'll receive a first edition monograph and a photographic print for your collection. And because of the quality of their curation and photographers, you'll have something to look forward to every month. And if you don't like that month's release, you can choose another of their titles of similar value. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today and remember to use the code THECANDRIFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. If your photography has been in the doldrums, why not jumpstart your photography today by renting a lens or a camera you've been considering for a while and have yet to try? Just a week with that piece of kit can reintroduce that idea of playtime which might be just what you need to get those creative juices flowing again without a huge dedication or deduction from your, from your bank balance. LensRentals.com provides the means to do that. Their vast inventory of gear provides you that hands-on time that can make the difference for both your photography and your wallet. Check out their inventory and save 10% on your first order when you sign up for their newsletter at LensRentals.com forward slash newsletter. And thanks to all of you who continue to support The Candle Frame financially. It's been incredibly helpful over the past two years, as you can imagine. And we've been very grateful for every contribution that people have made. And you can do that too today, if you haven't already, by contributing $5, 10 $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. Just $5 a month from you can make a huge difference. Thank you for your kindness and your continued support. It seems like the work is so infused by both the aesthetics of the place and also, you know, the your personal investment in terms of his, his history, spirituality, and even your own identity. And it seems like this site was particularly conducive to that. But when you were in locations where where the sites were surrounded by modernity, either industrial or commercial sites, was it more of a challenge to tap into that that sense of it? Um, as you experienced uh, in, in this image that we're just talking about? Yes and no. I think, yes, I mean, it's clear that those sites that are surrounded by highways and chain link fences, you know, and, and the busy sort of modern, modern busy modern lifestyles, it, it, it is harder uh, to tap into that sensation, but it's always there. Um, and I can think of, multiple experiences throughout the 10 years where um, I would be at, uh, you know, at a mound site, let's say the, the Shrum Mound in Columbus, Ohio, which this is just outside the inner city of Columbus. It's this small, I don't know, it might be a two or three acre plot of land that's been protected. And, you know, the, the focal point of the land is this, this ancient conical burial mound called Shrum Mound. Uh, but yeah, there's a highway on one side, there's uh, a condo development on the other side, there's shops across the street. Um, you can see the city of Columbus from the top of the mountain. But 
just in that small little plot of land, there still is this really beautiful sensation that at least I sort of sense, um, even in that, you know, that small little piece that's been preserved, there's still elements of that. Yeah, and, and kind of everywhere I went throughout the book, there are photographs uh, woven throughout that are more about telling the story of kind of early settlement. So as we moved west, as the project moved west, there were, there were photographs that weren't necessarily on, you know, sites that were uh, like specifically archaeological sites or sacred sites, but um, a way for me to kind of develop a larger story about our movement across the land. And so those sites felt different to me than, than say, a burial mound. But in general, yeah, I mean, every place, every site that I visited, there is some, there was some sensation there for me to, to try to tap into. One of the things that won me over in terms of this, I see a lot of books. And so uh, I can get kind of jaded in terms of how much I like a book, not just based on how much I like the photographs, but in terms of the design choices that are made and the layout and all of those things. And the thing that won me over was the inclusion of those artifacts, those basically still lifes. As soon as I saw that, I just knew that I was going to have you on the show. Um, <laughs> and it's really interesting because you have these, you know, these landscapes that are really beautiful. And yet you have these still lifes of these artifacts of, of things like, you know, discarded energy bottles and, you know, just waste. And they're interspersed throughout, um, throughout the book. And I really want to know in terms of not just the choice to make those photographs and include them in the book, but how you saw them in terms of pacing in terms of the design flow of, of, of the entirety of the book. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, those are, those are so critical and important to me to the full spectrum of the project yeah that and it started very casually um i started visiting sites and the first couple sites i started visiting i started noticing a lot of garbage and i thought well i'll just pick up this garbage and throw it away it just seems like the right thing to do um and then something clicked in me and i thought well maybe maybe i won't throw it away but i'll just put it in a bag and take it home with me um, and I don't know what clicked there, but I thought I, as a photographer, I'm, I was very, I was a little uncomfortable with just straight landscape photographs. Um, you know, if you look at the trajectory of my work or the archive, I'm very, uh, I'm kind of all over the place. I'm working with digital images. I'm working with film images. I'm doing video. I'm, I'm putting found objects in galleries. Um, so for me to just make a large format landscape project was a little uncomfortable. There needed to be another layer to the story. There needed to be another kind of direction to point the viewer. Um, and so it dawned on me and it sort of clicked when I had this garbage in my hand that I'm holding an artifact. I'm holding a modern artifact that that is going to say something about our culture and the way in which the artifacts in the museum say something about this whole other culture that came before us and still lives here. And so, uh, yeah, so I started collecting them and, and brought them back home with me and, uh, and decided I would put them in this, you know, white tent and very clinical setting and photograph them very kind of uh, pseudo scientifically as, as if they were ancient artifacts. And uh, they became really important to the project. I show them in all the installations of the work. There's, you know, 18 to 20 of them now. Um, and I still have a crate full of, of collected garbage in my garage that needs to be photographed. And then in terms of the, the book, you're, you're, you're right on there. They became a really important, not necessarily like a chapter marker, but, but a, a pause in the sequence. Um, to kind of uh, shift your point of view. Um, and the designer I worked with, uh, Olana Schlenker, um, who lives in Pittsburgh, she's a phenomenal designer. She came back to me with this initial layout. You know, we moved, we moved the landscape images around a lot, uh, but she came back, uh, her initial uh, layout was, you know, to space these artifacts out in, in sets of two. 
throughout the sequence of the book. And sometimes they're on facing pages. Sometimes it's just one image on the page and then one image on the next page. Um, and I loved it right from the start. I, I loved the way it created an interesting kind of pace and pause um, throughout the book. And so we kept that throughout and we kind of moved images around and stuff. But, you know, we worked, we worked really hard on the sequence of this book and really wanted to create a sort of open space for contemplation. So there's a lot of white space in the book. We were thinking about that a lot. And the artifacts, I think, you know, it's white on white, you know, so it, it's, um, they're, they're very understated. They're just kind of barely there. Uh, but yeah, that, that was a, it was a, a really important um, piece to the puzzle for me, that, that whole series. So I appreciate that you felt that way as well. Yeah, it's one of my uh, of the books that I picked up this year. Uh, the design is one of my my favorites, especially the you know the choice to paste them in the way they do, and the and the embracing of the white space. Hmm. Oh, and, and you just said something about uh, collected garbage. I'm going to have to remember that phrase the next time I talk to my wife about something. <laughs> and this is not garbage. This is collected garbage. <laughs> but. Um, Tell me about the the research involved because you start you know you noted that there were several sites in in your media area but then you started exploring other states and other locations. Tell us about the the research and the means by which you were able to find the time um, to be able to go out and make these these photographs. Yeah, so uh, you know behind behind the scenes with all these images is is years and years of of research and boring research. Uh, a lot of reading, you know, I've got a, a shelves full of uh, books about indigenous history in the United States. And, um, you know, the, the, the sites themselves started uh, because I lived in this area. So it started in, in West Virginia and then it moved to Ohio. I got a grant to uh, follow the ancient Ohio trail um, for over the course of a year through uh, South, South and Central Ohio. And, you know, these, these were places that were important to me. I had grown up there, and uh, so I needed to kind of know more. And, and then I just kept reading and reading. And, and for me, reading about a particular place made me really want to go there and see it in person. So, uh, for example, the Cahokia um, State Historic Site outside of St. Louis, you know, the Black Hills, uh, incredible location, northeastern Wyoming, uh, into Montana, uh, and then the Four Corners area. These were all areas that I had read extensively about and, 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 and had to visit them. Um, so, yeah, all, all the research kind of, um, the research that I was doing, the reading I was doing, the project just kind of evolved on the back of that. And you know, there was a lot of other work I was doing in between time. So this wasn't the only thing I was doing. And of course, I have a busy family life too. I have three kids and a wife who works. So these trips were like these little, these little shotgun trips. I'd have like a week at most, uh, four or five days. And so I would do incredible amount of planning and I'd create these really detailed maps and I knew that, you know, boots on the ground were so, I had such limited time that I would absolutely pack these days full. I was up before sunrise, out past sunset, and then I'd come back to the hotel room. I'd be downloading film in the hotel room, loading new film, uh, prepping for the next day, getting up and doing the same thing, you know, traveling hundreds and thousands of miles over four or five days. It was these phenomenal but exhausting experiences that were just adrenaline filled. And, you know, it, it, those were like maybe once a year if I was lucky. And I had to have grant money to do these things as well to, to support these trips. So kind of had to wait for that uh, to develop at the same time. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it evolved. C considering, you know, the limited time that you had and the fact that, you know, limited funds and that you really couldn't easily come back to these sites to do it over again. T tell me about the choice to shoot it on large format film as opposed to shooting it digital. 
Yeah, excellent question. And you're right. You know, you, 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 if you make a mistake, that's it. You may, you, we all know that as photographers, it, and it, it's never going to be the same the next time you visit. So you, you, you better get it right then and there. Um, and, and large format photography presents all sorts of potential pitfalls for getting it right. Everything is, is manual. The camera that I'm using is, you know, not much different than the cameras that were used in, at the birth of photography in the, you know, mid 19th century. And so everything I'm doing is, is by hand. And not to mention the fact that to shoot a sheet of film and process it, you're looking at six, seven, eight dollars a photograph or more these days. It's been a, it's been a year or two since I processed film, but um, so uh, yeah, you put a lot of stake into every single photograph and a lot of effort. And when they go right, it's an incredible experience. When they work, it's amazing. When they don't, you kind of have to live with that. It's an interesting life lesson. It's, it's, if it doesn't work, you have to let it go. Um, because you're right, there wasn't, there wasn't really another opportunity for me to revisit even though there are several places I'd love to go back to and several that I'd love to rephotograph, and hundreds that I visited and photographed and didn't make it into the book because they didn't work out right for me. Um, I, I, it's sort of a, an important life, life lesson that I have to live with, with, um, with what I got. The other thing that, you know, that I'll say about shooting large format photography is that, um, and I think this is a, you know, this is a, Something that I think is lost um, in in uh, the world of digital photography is is that uh, I have to be really calculated in the field. Number one, to get it right, I have to be on my game in so many ways. And um, but even then, I don't know if I've got it right, right? Because I don't get to see anything until weeks and sometimes months later. You know, you, you shoot the film, you download it. All of these things are really important. You bring it home, you send it to the lab, um, you wait for it to come back. And then you're holding it up, you know, to the light table or to your window. And you think, oh my gosh, I got it right. Oh my gosh, I did it. Oh no, I failed there. Um, but you really haven't seen it until you scan it in. So there's still a whole nother part. For me, I'm scanning these at a really high resolution. And then finally, I get a chance to see it. and I can't tell you how many times that was either disappointing or thrilling because you never really know until you've scanned it in what happened. Um, and then, you know, there's been this lapse of time between the actual time that you captured the photograph, which could have been months previous, and then the result. And I think that's an, a really interesting and very important um, lapse of time. I talk about this a little bit. Um, I've talked about this a little bit in other interviews because I'm not, there's no immediate gratification for me. I've had this time to kind of reflect and contemplate on this place and this experience. And I think that that in turn informs my editing. Uh, and when I finally get to revisit this photograph, um, so that's something that I think is kind of fascinating and, and very different these days from the instant gratification that we're used to with digital photography and, and our phones. Well, one of the things really interesting when I see uh, work of, of young photographers and I find out they've only been shooting the two to three years, one of them is very humbling, especially when you see how good they've gotten within a very limited period of time where I've been shooting for decades and I feel like it took, I was moving at a snail's pace. But uh, it's always interesting to see the change. Now, here you were working for over a decade on this project. So when you look at the work, and especially when you're putting it together for the book, how do you think you evolved and changed as a photographer? What did you observe when you were, when you were looking at the work over that span of time? Yeah, excellent question. I don't think anybody's asked me about that before, but it is something I've very, been very aware of. Um, when I first started this project, I was thinking I was shooting everything with a wide angle. I wanted to show the entire story. Um, it was very much like the early landscape survey photographs from, you know, from the 19th century, uh, as if I was just kind of recording everything I could see to show you the whole view of the site. And as, 
as the project evolved within the first couple of years, I realized that a lot of my photographs looked alike, almost too much alike. They were too similar for me. Um, and I was showing too much of the space. So um, I started thinking about details. And this might have been, you know, a similar time in which I thought, well, maybe these artifacts, these still life images be could also be a part of this project and kind of break up the view a little bit. But um, in the field, I started, like when I started shooting in, in Ohio, which was three or four years into the project, I started looking at details in, at these sites or along the journey, if you will, that I think added something to the story, to the narrative. And so I was thinking kind of more holistically about the narrative and not just about like a sort of typography or typology, if you will, of these mounds or of these sites. Um, and it kind of, I think it, 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 it uh, added an, an element and a different flavor to the overall, to the overall project uh, as it grew. Um, so that's, that's probably the, the, the um, biggest thing that I noticed that evolved over time was just that, that, that change of uh, composition throughout, throughout the, the 10 years and thinking kind of larger about uh, the, overall, the overall story of this land. As, as the book has gone out and, you know, exhibitions of the work have gone out, what, what have been some of the surprising reactions you've received? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, just, just in, in general, the, the, the project, uh, the exhibitions and the book have been, have been really well received. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of what, if anything, if there was anything surprising that I've gotten from readers uh, or viewers. And uh, I, think, I think probably the, the, thing that, um, the thing that I hear the most is that, that uh, I didn't know this existed. Uh, I didn't know that these were so close. Um, and I'm talking specifically about um, viewers, say here in West Virginia or in Ohio, who didn't realize that uh, the Suncrest Town Center had been built on a, on a sacred uh, uh, Native American site or didn't realize that there was this ancient history um, surrounding them with these burial mounds. They had, they had maybe, maybe sort of casually seen them um, while they're commuting somewhere. And I was in a similar place. Um, so I think it's, I think it's that, uh, that awareness um, that they're kind of struck with uh, that was a surprise to me and, and one of the inspirations for the project. And I think that awareness that I give, I can give the viewer, I think um, is the thing that, that sort of surprises them. Um, and my hope is that that then kind of makes them more aware of, of where they are and the place they call home and, and what's immediately around them. Tell me about, um, tell us about the relationship between you and the publisher of the book. I, 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 I never know how to pronounce it. Is it Kerrig? <laughs> I think it's Kerrig Verlag is how I say it, but. Kerrig, okay. Yeah, I would miss that by a mile. Um, <laughs> but, but tell me about building a relationship with them and getting the book published. Cause I know a lot of people out there aspire to make, make a book, but it's kind of the idea of how that, how you make that happen can vary from, uh, from person to person. What was your experience? Yeah, my, I had a great experience. Actually, I think I, I met with Alexa Becker, the acquisitions editor at Care Harbor Leg, in 2015, 2016, maybe at photo Lucida portfolio reviews. She showed some interest, but it wasn't, she didn't completely swallow the hook, let's say. And the project was still developing at that stage. Mm -hmm. And uh, so several, several years went by. And I think it was in, I want to say it was early 2019, 2020, that I sent, uh, I sent her a PDF of, images and that had grown, you know, four years or so since I had talked to her, it had grown quite a bit. And, uh, and there was sort of an uh, immediate interest in the work and basically an email saying, we are interested in publishing this work. Uh, let's talk. And then we, you know, there was a lot of, 
a lot of Zooms and FaceTimes and Skype calls. You know, it, the, it was very interesting because not only had we entered a global pandemic at, a, at about the same time, but I was working with this publisher in Germany. Um, so there was this, you know, five to six hour time difference. Um, and uh, communication was probably the biggest challenge. Uh, but I have to say they were just they were just incredible. I really wanted to be on press for the for the book. Um, that was definitely one of my goals. Um, but we weren't able to make it happen for obvious reasons related to the pandemic. So um, I worked really closely with their printer there, Eric Clue, who is incredible. I don't know if I'm saying his right name right, but he sent me uh, proofs with a, a you know, a swatch of every single image that was in the book. And I made uh, notations on all those and sent them back to him. And then he had those while he was on press and was making adjustments to the images. And I can honestly say that I could not be happier with the, the quality of the book. One of the reasons I went with Kerheverleg is because I had known about their books. Um, I had seen their books. I own some of their books. I have friends who have published with them. And I knew that the quality would be top-notch. I also liked the idea of working with an international publisher and, and exposing my work and the story of this work to a larger audience. Um, so ultimately, uh, yeah, I went with them. I had three different offers from different publishers and um, kind of fell on them. It was just a good relationship. I felt like they were very excited about the work, understood the work in ways that uh, was was inspiring to me and uh, and so yeah it was, it was a really it's been a really great relationship and and it continues to this day um, I've been invited to go to Paris Photo in November to do a, a book signing with them at their table I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to make that happen or not but that that's sort of a dream come true well that's nice congratulations I hope you can make it out there my last question which I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it could be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So what would that photographer be and why? Yeah, I, uh, there's, there's so many, but um, the one that, that uh, it was sort of immediate um, to me, his name is Jeremy Dennis. And he's uh, a fairly young uh, Native American photographer. Uh, he's, I think he's maybe 30, 30 years old or so. Uh, but he's a, a tribal member of the Shinnecock Indian Nation in Southampton, New York. And um, his work is a really, really interesting mix of documentary photographs and then kind of staged reenactments and narrative tableau images, all of which kind of explore indigenous identity and assimilation. And uh, some of some of his projects, I think, are really really great. There's one, well, there's one called On the Site, which is, um, you know, Joel, Joel Sternfeld actually has a, a photographic series written under the same title. But here, Jeremy is um, using photography and interactive map to showcase uh, culturally significant sites on Long Island, which was a very important land to him. It's where he grew up. Um, so this is a really strong personal resonance to his work that that I think uh, viewers should be aware of and should check out. I, I really love his kind of staged work as well. I think there's a project called Nothing Happened Here that I just that I just really love, and I wish um, I wish more people were aware of his work. So yeah, that's an artist that, that I would like uh, the larger population to be aware of. Well, thanks for that recommendation. And thank you for sharing your work with me and my, and my audience. I greatly appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for all the great questions. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks to Michael for joining us. Find out more about Michael and his work by going to his website, michaelsherwin.com. And remember to check out the Curious Society at curioussociety.org. I received the first issue of their magazine, which you can purchase today, even without a membership. And if you just want a taste of the great work that you'll be helping to support, this would be a wonderful start. Your purchase will not only thrill you, but you'll be contributing to an organization and creatives that are really deserving of your support. 
Now, your thoughts and feelings about this show, they really matter. And if you haven't already, please write a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to podcasts. It helps us to stand out among the many thousands of podcasts that are out there. Your voice makes a huge difference. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to Alan Schock, Daniel Rock, and Adam Gerlich for their recent contributions. So much appreciated. We also provide a series of eBooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge and another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ebody and X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>